you've still just got to make the most of the time you have left and get as much out of that as you can haven't you and but also just be a bit kinder on yourself if you do need a bit of downtime because at the end of the day we are neurodivergent people trying to negotiate a neurotypical world it's still tougher even even with the drugs you know Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Welcome to the beginning of a very special series I've put together. You know, after recently reaching the milestone of 150 interviews with women with ADHD, I started reflecting back on this anthology and wanted to re-release some of the interviews that have really stayed with me in some particular way, either because of the topic or the vulnerability of the conversation, or perhaps some particular nuggets of wisdom that have deeply affected my way of thinking. So I've chosen 10 episodes that I feel deserve a replay. So perhaps you missed this one the first time around. Now you'll get a chance to hear it. Or if you listened to it when it originally aired, I hope you'll enjoy listening to it again. So with that, I present to you the first in this series, my interview with Carrie Mead, which originally aired back in March of 2021. I think the reason why this conversation has stayed with me so much is because of how raw and openly we spoke about the trials of being moms with ADHD, especially during the pandemic and lockdown. I had first reached out to Carrie after reading a piece she wrote for the Everyday Magazine on her depression growing up and how that diagnosis defined her until she discovered she had ADHD. I so deeply related to that piece and was so grateful to have this opportunity to discuss a diagnosis of depression with somebody who just really got it. After choosing this interview to be part of the series, I asked Carrie if she could give us an update on how she's doing, how her kids are doing, how her master's is going, whether she's still writing that book. We also get into it again about the NHS in the UK and the current state of ADHD diagnoses. It was so great to catch up with her, and you'll get to hear that new update from Carrie at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Okay, so here as part of my top 10 replays, I give you episode 21 with Carrie Mead. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Carrie Mead. Carrie is a music-obsessive, book-obsessive, social butterfly, and escaper of responsibilities. Carrie has attention deficit disorder. She's a full-time single parent and a registered carer to her oldest child who is autistic. When she isn't busy with all of that, Carrie is a writer and a music editor. She writes about parenting and neurodiversity, politics, relationships, and all of that other stuff too. I reached out to Carrie for this interview after stumbling upon a really powerful essay she wrote for the Everyday Magazine in the UK. The article was entitled, I Don't Have Depression, I Have Attention Deficit Disorder, The Frequent Misdiagnosis of Women. And there's a link to that article in the show notes. I highly recommend you read it. I was really struck by the piece. I so related to her experience, especially as a woman who was misdiagnosed with chronic depression and anxiety for more than 20 years prior to my own ADHD diagnosis. Carrie and I talk about being mothers and the struggles that we've faced with the 
domestic duties and the guilt and feelings of being a failure. We also talk about how easy it is for mothers to put the work in when it comes to our kids, but not necessarily for ourselves. Carrie is from the UK, and so we talk a bit about the National Health Service, the NHS, and some of the current hurdles to getting an ADHD diagnosis right now. The wait list can be years for some people. So I found that really interesting, and I hope you do too. And before we get started, I have to warn you, for the first time with one of my interviews, I got so excited to start talking to Carrie that I forgot to hit record at the beginning. Frankly, I'm surprised this doesn't happen to me more often. So I wanted to let you know that this episode starts about five minutes or so into our conversation, and Carrie is telling me about her son Sam's diagnosis with autism and how that awareness led to the beginning of her own journey and her realization of her own neurodiverse mind. So it starts rather abruptly, and that is why I really apologize for this. Enjoy. So it took us two years to get a diagnosis, and the I learned a lot about neurodiversity in that time. So I'm into this realisation about myself already being quite active in the neurodiverse community and having done a lot of research myself. But it's funny, I never, ever would have thought 10 years ago that I was neurodiverse at all. I would have laughed if someone had said that to me. <laughs> So it's, it's been a journey. <laughs> what were some of your own symptoms that led you to think that this was something you related to? I think for me, it was when I had my daughter, she's nine now. But as she started growing up, everyone has always said right from the very start of her life how much she is like me. She looks like me. Apparently, we have very, very similar characters, even as toddlers. And as she started growing up, I started to notice in her that I thought that she may have ADD or ADHD symptoms. And I was then faced with the realisation that if she did, because we were so similar, there was a strong chance I did. So I actually came to it through my daughter, mainly which has been a really interesting journey. And she's actually, um, she's waiting for assessment at the moment. And we've got her appointment next Monday to see a paediatrician for the first time. And I've told her that we're on the same journey together. And she feels really, really positive about it. And will actually actively tell people, me and my mum both have ADHD. That's wonderful. So... Yeah, it is. And I've always, always with my son as well, I've always tried to instill a sense of pride in their neuro, in his neurodiversity. That was one of the main things I wanted to do. I did not want to let it destroy his confidence in himself. So I need to do that myself now <laughs> for myself. <laughs> and so how long ago was this that kind of the light bulb went off that you could have ADHD and then started looking into it for your daughter? How long has that process been going on? With my daughter, I started having, I started thinking she may do when she was around five years old. But our lives at the time were very, very different from what they are now. They were a lot more difficult. My son, when he was younger, he was really, really struggling with his mental health. Uh, he wasn't getting on in mainstream school. He was uh, suspended constantly. He was very violent. We had social workers involved. 
And it felt like I didn't have the energy to even think about looking into Ruby's ADHD. I physically didn't have the energy. I'm a single mum as well. And I've been single since um, Sam was three and Ruby was a baby. So it kind of got put on the back burner. I couldn't even consider thinking about it for myself. I was very much like a lot of mums. I need to look after the kids first. But then I started meeting people from neurodiverse community through my son because I used to go to support groups and a lot of parents were in the same boat as me. Through their children, they were beginning to realise that they were undiagnosed with autism, ADHD, dyspraxia themselves, you know, things like that. And I began to notice that it was almost like you attract neurodiverse people to you if you are neurodiverse. And I began learning loads. I used to laugh a lot about the fact that I had traits. And then one of my very closest friends, whose daughter went to school with Sam and has now herself got a diagnosis of ADHD and PDA, her mum became one of my very close friends. And she sat me down one day and she said, I'm going for a diagnosis of ADHD. Kerry, you need to do the same. And I kind of brushed it aside because it felt like I wasn't important enough to actually bother going through that process. And then just a year ago, I had a cancer scare. I went into hospital. Um, I had a total histomy. I had a very large tumour removed from my uh, ovary. And I thought at one point I was going to die of cancer. And then I had a month of recovery on the sofa. And then literally the day after I first managed to get out of the house, we went into lockdown in the UK mm. because of coronavirus. So I was kind of forced into this space where I had a lot of time to reconsider my life and realise its value. And to realise that I was worth pursuing that diagnosis and it was worth me actually doing it so that I could change my life because I don't think I'd realise until I had that time to stop actually how much undiagnosed ADHD or ADD, I don't know which I am yet, I think I'm probably more ADD, had affected my whole life and I had space and time to go through that grieving process and to realise it and realise that I didn't have to carry on making the same mistakes or living life in the same way. So it's been very, very recent for me. It's only been in 2020, really, that I've embraced it, that I've realised that I deserve a diagnosis and I deserve to learn how to live my life differently. Oh, so <laughs> That's so well said. And I think something that I certainly relate to, I'm sure a lot of women, mothers relate to that. You know, I've interviewed some women who have young children you know, my kids are 13 and nine. And so I'm, mm. I have a lot of gratitude that I feel like I am just starting to focus on my own mental health on a level that I wasn't able to, you, you can't, yeah. when you have these no. balls of need clinging to you all the time, you know, and so I just like, oh, I feel so much for women who have the younger children and are going through that, like we said, like, just feeling like you, you have to put yourself last. It's not even like, 
you're making that conscious choice sometimes. Like it really feels like a survival method, you know, of, yeah. of putting yourself last. And I'm like getting all choked up because I just like, I remember that feeling so strongly. And I think, you know, you talk about this, I guess we'll just, you know, talk about the article that you had written. Was it in September? Um, yeah. The article about, uh, I don't have depression. I have ADD and it's obviously it got a lot of attention. It was why I read it and reached out to you immediately because I just like so viscerally related to it in terms of that feeling like, you know, not only looking back at your whole life and, and, and seeing things through this different lens, but also seeing that like glimmer of hope for the first yeah. time and sort of really feeling like my life is starting anew in, in a way that is really, really difficult to articulate. And I think you did such a great job of questioning. So many of us have gone through a lifetime of depression and anxiety. And it's been mm. kind of, that's the shelf that a lot of these feelings have been put on. Yeah. And to, to then look back and say, like, it bothers me when people talk about co uh, comorbidity, when they talk about depression and anxiety as a comorbidity of ADHD, because I just don't feel like that's how it feels to me. You know, I feel like... Mm the medical community, the mental health community looks at depression and anxiety as like a, a, a chronic physical condition on its own. And, mm. and, and they don't, they treat it like it's a condition as opposed to it being a symptom of something else. And I so totally agree. Right. Yeah. I, and yeah. So when I was health, co when I was going through my health coaching training, they talked about this, the thumbtack method or, you know, and, and the fact that the medical community will look at, you know, if you go to a doctor and you have a thumbtack in your ass and you're like, my ass hurts, I don't know why the doctor will give you painkillers and then and send you home. And then, you know, it's up to you to figure out where the pain is coming from and then how to remove the thumbtack. And that's how it sort of felt like when I had this ADHD diagnosis, where I suddenly had the power to sort of look back at my own, my own lifetime of, of depression and anxiety mm. in this way. Like I felt suddenly like, oh my goodness, I can actually do something about this as opposed to constantly feeling like I was just tripping over this just cycle of always going back to the, the same place. Yeah, I know. And, and I used to view it as a weakness mm. in myself somehow, that why do I struggle so much with life? when other people don't why do um you know why do I keep getting depressed why do I keep getting stress and anxiety symptoms why and is the medication not helping as well I always felt like it didn't really help that much I mean I um I was last on antidepressants so I actually only came off them in the summer uh, for five years and they did help at first because I was I was on the verge of a breakdown when I started taking them. But I never actually felt like they did what they were meant to do. I always felt like if I'm this bad on medication, imagine how bad it'll be off medication. <laughs> that was what I always yeah. thought when I felt like they weren't yeah. working. <laughs> yeah. And I used to feel like, I used to feel as well, like I wasn't really depressed as the textbook said I should be. I wasn't suffering from anxiety as the textbooks and the GP said I should be. They always felt like something a little bit off. And now that I've realised that the anxiety, depression, panic attacks, the stress were a symptom of masking, a symptom of not understanding myself, 
I can see now why I always felt like a little bit of a fraud saying that I was I had depression or I had anxiety. It's been a massive revelation. It's been, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm cured now of ever, ever having um, periods in my life where my mental health isn't so good. I mean, obviously the pandemic <laughs> has meant I'm at quite a low point at the moment, but I think that I will be much better prepared and able to deal with them now because I know their roots and I have another toolkit for how to make my life feel better, mm. which is approaching it as a neurodiverse person rather than just a person who can't cope with life right so yes absolutely and then I think about what a benefit I will be as a mother to my two children (laughs) not only (laughs) as just a happier person who who doesn't carry around all the shame and guilt that I felt like I brought to every situation and always was in this Mm. default of like oh I'm a terrible person I'm a terrible mother Mm. you know like I can the difference in my own self-talk just in the last few months has been radical and so I think about you know not only does that make me a better partner better mother but then like you know both of my children neither of them is diagnosed yet just because I'm so newly diagnosed. Um, yeah. and also the pandemic, I'm like, I'm not interested, <laughs> you know, the battery of tech, like there doesn't seem a ur- sense of urgency to it because I sort of feel like mm. I'm able to help them and, and view situations in a way that is going to be helpful no matter what, whether they're diagnosed or not. And so I'm just sort of seeing like all that I'm bringing to the table now for the first time, whereas I never used to be able to Take see sleep. that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I was one of those um, children that was considered really, really gifted at school as well. So I had this extra layer of shame around how, how I had managed not to actually achieve much with it. Oh, yes. That actually starting to work through that and getting rid of that has made me so much less bitter um, happier, lighter, freer, just realising that, yeah, I, I was gifted, I'm still gifted, but the reason I could never show up, that I could never actually get my work in, that I always did the minimum amount possible, the reason why I actually got nearly kicked off my degree course and nearly kicked out of college was because that I was at fault, that I'm not a bad person. I know why now. And that is really, really helping me with, with my life now. As in, yeah, my house is an absolute tip, but it's not because I'm lazy or incapable. Sometimes I do lose my rag. Sorry, do you know what that means? <laughs> Sometimes I lose my temper with my children, okay. but that, <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm a bad mother. That means right. that I'm under pressure, that I'm neurodiverse, that, of course, parenting, when you're neurodiverse, especially parenting to neurodiverse children, it's quite a lot of hard work. As a know. single parent, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that grace, having that grace with yourself is just, oh, it's like such a sigh of, of release. And and it's funny because, you know, there's these things that I feel like should have occurred to me a long time ago. Like my house is a disaster and I, and I don't mop my kitchen floor. It doesn't make me a morally corrupt person. Like I just don't give a crap. Like I'm okay with that. <laughs> And why did I, I carry so much guilt around that? It's yeah, so but the, the thing that I've been exploring a little recently in my thoughts is that not only is it an ADHD issue for women, 
with these feelings of guilt and failure around how well they keep their house and how well they parent. It's a feminist issue. You know, it's so much of what we are told we should be doing as a woman gives us our worth. And women who are neurodiverse often struggle with being able to do those things. So we're constantly telling ourselves that we're not proper women if we have piles and piles of laundry in the corner of the bedroom because we forgot to put them away or we couldn't face putting them away. You know, that we struggle just with managing all of the household admin and all of the emotional load. We tell ourselves that we're failures, but also we've then become failures as women, Mm -hmm. which... I think, I'm not saying that men don't struggle with these issues, but I think for women with ADHD, it is a lot worse because so much of our self-worth is based around how good a mum you are, how well you keep your home, how well you look after your husband or your partner. And I think that that puts so much more stress and pressure on neurodiverse women than maybe our male counterparts put on themselves and Mm. feel from society in general. And why so many of us kind of lost our shit when when lockdown happened, (laughs) because we had this house (laughs) of cards, really. I mean, we had this house of cards and we were just keeping it together. And then all of a sudden a wind came in and blew it all down. And we were just like, I give up. I don't know. Like I I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It's, oh my God. So the craziness of last March and April. Yeah. I mean, the the house just went to pot. Everybody else is saying about all the DIY projects they're getting on with. And like, oh, they're going to take the time to decorate the living room or paint the garden fences. And I'm just there literally with, Yeah, feeling like I'm holding up a house of cards that's just about to collapse. The house immediately got more disgusting, more disorganised because the children were home all the time. And I also had to become a teacher, which really, really is not my my career of choice and never has been. Right. (laughs) You brought up up an interesting point earlier about being a childhood, Mm. being gifted and and feeling as though you had, you know, I always talk about like my report cards and how it always said I wasn't living up to my potential and feeling Mm. really resentful, even at the time, sort of feeling like if I have this potential, nobody's nobody's articulating what that potential is to me. So how can you see it? What is it? And, and mm-hmm. you know, for you to accuse me of not reaching this potential, how can I even reach it if I don't even see it? And so you were saying like, as a child who had, who was labeled as gifted, and I was too, like, there's a sense of like the fact that you've been, you've been bestowed these gifts and you have chosen to squander them. And, <laughs> and totally, I, totally. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so you're, so you feel this sense of responsibility that you've chosen to squander these things. You know, it's like the the responsibility has been placed on you and yet you don't know what to do with it or what these things are. You can't even see them. And I think that really kind of brings forward, especially as women, when you started talking about women and the perfectionism and and mothering, you know, there is this sense of, I think that not only this perfectionism, but I think there's also this like sense that you are in control, even though you've, you're at the wheel, even though you've never driven before, <laughs> you know, and, and and feeling like somehow you're you're not only do you have these enormous responsibilities, but you're intentionally squandering them. Yeah, and not even totally. not even feeling like you prepare. You know why we always have these. I never studied for the test dreams. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's been a huge player in my life. Just the sense of failure, and yeah, I thank you for saying that. The feeling of having having squandered my life in some way. I'm a single mum. I don't work at the moment, really more than about 10 hours a week I'd say I do a lot of writing for myself hey, I was gonna but... say that's there's paid work and then there's what you're doing which is yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I'm a registered carer for my son um I sometimes wonder whether I'll ever be able to work a full-time job again because I don't feel like I could actually fit that in maybe once I've got a diagnosis or I'm on medication it might be different but I do feel like I've squandered a lot of the chances I've had in life. And that brings up a lot of feelings of shame that I, I'm still working through. I'm still struggling with. I just always remember when I was at primary school, so I would have been about eight or nine, there was a really popular TV programme in the UK at the time called This Is Your Life. And it was basically, um, it was like a surprise party for a very famous person towards the end of their life so they'd go and like sneak up on an actor or something like that when they're coming out of the theatre and they pull out this big red book and say come with us to the studio this is your life we're going to bring all these people we've known you all through your life and basically have a big party to say how great you are on live tv and I got a report card that said if there is a student that I've ever taught who was going to end up on This Is Your Life, it's Kerry. And I know that it was meant, it came from a really heartfelt, positive place, but that has haunted me. (laughs) (laughs) You should have ended up on This Is Your Life. It's haunted me. And I still, it makes me feel now like a failure, like I have squandered everything. And it has added this layer as well of like, feeling like I need to be perfect at everything, which has been a massive struggle through my life as well. Mm-hmm. And fed into that whole rejection, sensitivity, dysmorphia, you know. Dysphoria, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Dysfo- dys- <laughs> dysphoria, sorry. I can't I speak. There's a, lot, just... <laughs> there's, there's a lot of terminology to, to equate yourself with when you're in the neurodiverse yeah. community. There is, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the other thing I was reminded of with your essay uh, was Mm. I really related to that moment when you were lying awake in bed, thinking you were dying and going (laughs) and that going to your mom and saying, you know, I think I'm dying. And I was curious. I was like, I wonder because I've certainly felt that I still do. I mean, I certainly my mind goes there when I'm lying awake at night. I wake up in the middle of the night. I have a headache and clearly I have a blood clot and I'm about to have a stroke. And who do I call first? And I don't even know where Mm. my checkbook is. You know, it's like I don't know where my passport is, how it like it just it goes from there. And I'm like curious if there's a connection between ADHD and hypochondria. Because it makes sense in that same idea of like all the things we've talked about in terms of feeling like confused feeling like you've been betrayed by your brain um you know betrayed by your body betrayed by your mm. thoughts um I'm cur- I don't know I have no I'm just thinking of it off the top of my head but I'm not, I wonder if there is if that's a similar uh phenomenon yeah I think I think the thing is because I wouldn't say that those feelings of thinking that I was going to die were coming from so much hypochondria they were more from having severe panic attacks Mm. and actually feeling like I couldn't breathe 
Um, I'd never say I've been a hypochondriac, but it's it's funny. I was having a discussion with uh, another woman who's going through the same process as us at the moment. She's in her late forties, and she's um, she's coming to terms with the fact that she is neurodiverse. Um, I'm going to be interviewing her for my book, but I'll come on to that in a while. And she definitely sees herself as being a hypochondriac. And I feel it it ties in so much of anxiety. It ties in so much with maybe feeling too much, being very in your head, being very self-aware, aware of what's going on in your body, that maybe neurotypical people don't necessarily struggle with so much. So I think it's a really interesting question whether the two are linked. I don't know the answer, but it'd be interesting to see if anybody else does, if anybody else has looked into that, because I, th I think it could be a distinct possibility because, you know, ADHD people are very anxious. There are also quite a few neurotypical people. They, you know, they have sensory processing issues. They feel things mm -hmm. that maybe other people don't notice yeah. going on, you know. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one -on -one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So I grew up in Canada, so I grew up with federalized, yeah. federalized healthcare, public healthcare. Yeah. And I've been, but I've been living in the U.S. for 20 years. 
And don't get me started on, on the U.S. medical system. I mean, it's <laughs> even now to see so many people who are here struggling because you know, you have to, it's a cost, it's a cost analysis. Every time you do anything regarding healthcare, you know, you have to decide, am I going to pay for, to see my primary care physician? Am I going to pay my, I have, we have insurance, we have great insurance, but I, when Mm -hmm. I, my doctor prescribed Vyvanse and with my insurance, it's costing $50 a month for me to get that. I mean, that is really cost prohibitive for a lot of people. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that you're always taking your mental health, your your mental health has a price tag, your health has Mm -hmm. a price tag on it in the U.S. So I'm curious, talk to me and talk to our North American listeners about the NHS Mm -hmm. and why is it taking so long? Why is this process so long? and, And so many people in the UK seem to be in the situation that you're in. Yeah, so um, in my local authority area for the NHS, um, before the pandemic, it was a three-year wait to see a psychiatrist for uh, the in their adult ADHD team. It's now at four years. So I was only referred in September. I can't wait four years. <laughs> you know, the thought of it is crazy. But, I mean, why... Are we in that situation? It's really complicated. It's a really complicated situation. (laughs) Uh, But it's a lot to do with the NHS is on its knees. It's been driven there. Um, We've got a very conservative right-wing government. Uh, We we have done for quite some time. It doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. And... One of the things that this government keeps telling us is that it isn't going to sell off the NHS. But I think a lot of us know that it is probably going to happen and they're trying to dismantle it. This might sound a little bit like conspiracy theories. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's it's well accepted that we are seeing the death of the NHS at the moment. It's being run into the ground. It gets lambasted in our media constantly for its failings but it's it's not being looked after it's not it's having its funding cut at every turn little sections are being sold off one by one for example one of the first um parts of the NHS that was sold off in my local area was children's mental health services were sold to Virgin about four years ago. Virgin, so, as in um, Richard Branson's Richard, Virgin. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Virgin Healthcare. So, I mean, we we still don't have to pay for it, but it's being managed by a private company now, which is separate from the NHS. It's, I mean, the NHS is one of the best things about the UK. It's amazing, but it's also one of the least nurtured things in the UK at the moment and obviously the pandemic and the way that it's being handled in the UK at the moment which is very similar to how it was being handled by Trump is a massive worry at the moment that um, the NHS isn't going to survive it and we're going to be in the same position as North Americans in a couple of years time and having to pay for our health care it's a, a real worry so Part of me feels like I'm angry that I've got to wait four years. But the other part of me, I can't blame the NHS because I know what they're up against. 
and I know people who work for them as well and I know how difficult it is to be a part of the NHS at the moment but um, one thing I'm pursuing at the moment is um, trying to get a private diagnosis but funded by the NHS which is a possibility but it all depends on what the current funding stream for your local authority area is looking like. So I've got a conversation next week with my GP to see if they'll consider applying for funding for me to have a private diagnosis because I'm planning on returning to uh, university in September to study a master's in creative writing. And I feel I've got a good case because I'm going to need some support Mm-hmm. around my disability by then which I won't be able to access without a diagnosis so mm-hmm. yeah fingers crossed wow. yeah all right <laughs> I'm still reeling from the fact that you're going back for a master's <laughs> good for you um all right so more yeah on... I think I'm mad actually I'm wondering why I'm doing it a bit I feel like I've got to do it <laughs> it's my time to do it <laughs> well no that's a great explainer for that ADHD <laughs> sense of like I call it building my empire <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like you know I can't every week I'm like what a, what crazy scheme am I fully 100% invested in this week <laughs> that I had never even heard of last week <laughs> Um, so speaking of how prolific you are online uh, Mm. you run your blog but you also tell me about 19 stories I'm very fascinated with this project it seems like such a a passion project seems so heartfelt and so lovely what was the idea for that and how has it been how has it been kind of evolving over the past year well it's a good it's a good example of how my brain works actually this uh this story (laughs) (laughs) so I'm an editor for a magazine called the everyday I'm a music editor for them but I also write opinion pieces for them and um I pitched that I was going to write a piece about relationships under lockdown so this is back in kind of April time So I put a little call out on Facebook, just um, does anybody want to talk to me about how they're getting on being single or being coupled up in lockdown or whether they're struggling with missing somebody, which is the situation I was in in at the time. So I've just come out of a relationship shortly before I got ill. So at the end of 2019. And I had so many responses, but not just from people who had in, had a story that was relevant to my article, but people just messaging me because they just really wanted to say what was happening for them at the time. And that night, I led in bed with my brain whizzing. I'm sure you know that worm. Because <laughs> I had this amazing new idea that I wanted to set up an archive an online archive where people could tell their stories about what's going on for them at the moment, because everybody, I was just like, everybody's got a story and everyone's got a really, really valid story and a really interesting story. This is affecting us all in such different ways and are, you know, and everyone's going through it. So literally I hyper-focused for about a fortnight on setting up this website on pushing it on getting people to get in touch with me. I interviewed people. I spent hours writing up the interviews. I had people getting in touch with me just with 
photography projects, artworks they were working on. Some people just emailed me like a paragraph, like heartbreaking paragraphs. And so I started putting together this website and telling people stories. And they could be anonymous if they wanted as well. I didn't want people to feel embarrassed about what they were saying. So I've actually had quite a few anonymous ones. And then um, it got picked up by the local newspaper, um, had quite a lot of interest. And then it just stopped. (laughs) (laughs) People, People didn't really want to tell any stories anymore. I was really struggling with getting people to actually submit stuff or they said they would and they wouldn't follow up on it and I've never been very good at pushing people you know to say come on come on you said you were going to put in some writing can I have it please that's the boring part (laughs) I know um so it's been quite quiet on 19 stories recently I've still got it there I still think it's really really valid and there's some beautiful pieces on there and there's some really interesting things that have happened to people and they've shared and it's one of those things at the moment that you know my ADHD brain is that I really need to sit down and give this some nurture and love and attention but there's always a new shiny spangly project lurking Mm. around the corner (laughs) and I feel really bad about it and I feel like I need to really push it but it's almost like I've kind of reached a point with it where I know that it could really take off if I marketed it more and I I applied some money into it. But at the moment, I feel quite stuck at it. Although I know so many more people out there have got a story to tell about the pandemic. So if anybody, anybody at all wants to drop me an email. (laughs) I will put a link. Yeah, I will put a link to it just because Mm. I think people should read the stories. I think it's such a lovely project, even if it just sort of has come to an end. It's still I think it's Mm. such a lovely thing to have out there it's been such an incredible 2020 was such a crazy year (laughs) and you know I think it's interesting to me how something as universal as grief can be so isolating at the same time you know I remember when my mother passed away it was like the first time you know where I really felt how lonely grief can be and I found it interesting Mm. too just where I was like it's something we all go through I mean we all lose somebody we love who's close to us and yet how can something that we all have experienced make you feel completely isolated from everybody else and I think we experienced Mm -hmm. that a lot through the COVID lockdown and and all all of the stuff that has gone on in that in this past year it's forced us all into a corner hasn't it it's in we have to face ourselves Mm -hmm. whatever's going on for us I remember I remember sat, we had a really, in the UK, we had an unseasonably hot spring. So even in March, when we first went into lockdown, I was able to sit out in a deck chair in my back garden and enjoy the sun. And I remember sat there and it was so silent, no planes. I live in a large city. There's usually planes going over all the time. And I remember thinking, I really, really should be learning more about myself now. And, take, and going inside, but I don't want to. I don't like being forced to do that. And we were, we were all forced to take this big deep breath and really do a lot of work on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it's brought up so many different things to so many different people. Um, I mean, luckily for me, it's brought up 
the fact that I've got ADHD, yeah. <laughs> which seems to be um, going okay at the moment. So, <laughs> uh, Yes, in the grand scheme of things, I do feel like I, I have gratitude for a lot of the kind of dominoes that fell into place that led to this diagnosis. But yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I, w- I just wish I'd got it earlier. I wish I'd known. I really do. That's my biggest regret is I and my biggest grief is that I wish that I had known because I feel like I would have been a lot a lot kinder to myself I've been made different decisions and I would be in a lot better place than I am now you know yeah yeah I feel like I've a lot of women I have interviewed we do talk about that element of that the grief and the resentment and Mm. just kind of what to do with all of that to feel like this life that you're now looking back with this new lens and thinking sort of what could have been. Yeah, um, completely. So, uh, on a more positive note, what do you what do you love about your ADHD where you look back and you think, ah, oh, yes, of course that was ADHD? Oh, what do I love? What do I love? I really, really love how I think differently and view life differently. And that I've kind of like haven't settled down. I don't intend to ever. <laughs> You know, um, I feel like I've got quite a young head on my shoulders and I think that that's possibly got quite a lot to do with curiosity and searching out new things, new sources of dopamine, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's a really positive thing for me anyway. It was not so much a positive thing at school because I always felt different. I couldn't put my finger on it. But I think it's driven me to rebel. It's driven me to examine the world and look at the world in a different way, to not stay static. Even though as a mother, especially with young children, you have to kind of hold fast for quite some time. And I did struggle with that. I feel like I'm always going to keep on looking for new things. I think that's great. And I really like the flow I get into when I'm hyper-focused on something. I like my talents. I do feel lucky to have them, even though I've squandered them. I still feel lucky to have them. I've still got enough time left as well to actually make some use of them. And it's almost like quite a few of the things I love about ADHD, they've got their negative side, but they've also got the kind of um silver line the silver lining around the cloud like the intensity of my emotions I mean it's it's been a real struggle throughout my life but that has had a positive as well because I feel like I've when I experience happiness I really experience happiness you know none of my feelings are ever dulled Mm -hmm. yes I I feel as though uh, one thing that has changed for me when we were talking about kind of the self-talk and the grace with which mm. you look at the grace with which I look at how, why I'm doing the th- things I'm doing. I am now able to be much kinder with myself when I need to just relax. <laughs> it's much easier yeah. for me to relax because I think I used to have so much trouble relaxing because I felt like there were all these things I was supposed to be doing and now I'm like, no, I need to kind of unwind because I was just hyper-focusing for three days. <laughs> and so I'm much, I'm much yeah. easier on myself when I spend a day doom scrolling or lying on my phone, you know, lying on my couch on my phone, or, you know, these one, these days where I feel <laughs> me- like incredibly unproductive. I'm sort of like, no, this is a necessary kind of re reboot. 
Yeah, I haven't quite got to that stage yet. I still beat myself up. I still beat myself up about being glued to my phone. I've still mm. got a, I've got a huge, huge Twitter problem at the moment. <laughs> I spent hours on Twitter. It used to be Facebook, but I've um I've Facebook was becoming really negative for me, especially politics. So I've kind of pulled myself off of Facebook now, although I still need it for work. Uh, but I still beat myself up about spending too much time on social media. I still beat myself up about my house being a mess. I still find it difficult to relax. So that's that's my next project, is to get to the point <laughs> you're at. <laughs> One of the links at the bottom of your article that you, the essay that we've been talking about that you had written for the Everyday Magazine, you had mm-hmm. mentioned Neurotribes book Neurotribes that you had recommended that and it looks really fascinating and it's not one that I often see on sort of the top 10 lists and recommended books can you tell me a bit more about that book it's called Neurotribes the the legacy of autism and the future of neurodiversity which just sounds so awesome it is such an amazing book so I was recommended it years ago when I first realized that my son may be neurodiverse that he may have autism and I won't spend ages going into that process now and what it's like but uh, another parent of a autistic child said you need to read this book it's just come out it's fantastic and it's by a guy called Steve Silberman he's American he's a journalist and he spent years researching the history of autism doesn't mention ADHD much in it. It's more focused on neurodiversity um, and autistic people's experience of it. He looks at history of it, the social and cultural history, and moves into why it's good to celebrate neurodiversity and about a lot of the very much based online support there is now for neurodiverse people from their peers and actually raising themselves up and being proud of it rather than it being medicalised and seen as being something that needed to be trained out of them or hidden away. And it was was so inspiring. It was so inspiring because at this time, you know, autism neurodiversity they were all very new to me I thought that everybody who was uh, autistic was like the rain man that's what I thought yeah. you know like like the rest of the population before I was plunged into a world where I had to learn more about it because it might all of a sudden my child may be autistic so I can look back now and I can see what I did I hyper focused on autism for ages I learned everything I could about it but that book in particular it for me, it really, really represents how people should see it as a positive and not all negative. I mean, obviously, there's negative things. There are negative sides to being um, neurodiverse. You know, we've we've touched on them, haven't we, today, you know, with um, a lot of mental health issues and self-esteem issues. But there are also a lot of positives. And um, I think people need to remember that yeah whether they're neurodiverse themselves or whether they they love someone who is that is such a great point one thing I have a lot of gratitude for in my own kind of research journey since since being diagnosed and uh, the more I understand about ADHD and the more I realize it's not this sort of isolated neurodivergent 
whatever the word is I'm looking for, tick, <laughs> you know, that it's it's yeah. it's on this much larger spectrum of neurodivergence and and how we are, you know, how fluid that spectrum is. And so it's really sort of opened up so much more of my own understanding about autism because I hadn't really had the inclination to do much research you know I hadn't been personally hadn't been personally affected by it and so I didn't really take Mm. the time to understand it and so it's sort of a nice byproduct of my own research into ADHD is really sort of understanding autism sort of like you know the gender spectrum which is like you know we sort of used to operate in these very like containered male female you know gay straight and now it's like why is everybody queer why is everybody (laughs) non-binary it's not like it's it's not like it's just happening. It's that we sort of opened up this this spectrum and everybody mm. falls in some spot, you know, in this much larger yeah. spectrum. And so I really appreciate totally. how much my own understanding of this in, immense, incredibly amazing community and where, you know, where we all fall in it and how supportive everybody seems to be for now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't. I haven't got my article up in, and I have, can't remember the exact phrasing I use, but I kind of sort of like all of the um, sort of neurological conditions like um, autism, dyspraxia, ADHD, I, I kind of liken it to they're all huddled under the same umbrella, you know. And I, I actually ended up um, lecturing my daughter's GP doctor about <laughs> <laughs> You're saying about self-diagnosed people have done a lot more research than uh, quite a few general practitioners. Um, you know, because he was going through a questionnaire with me about um, Ruby's symptoms before he was put through a request for her to be assessed. And I said, and yeah, and she's got terrible sensory processing problems. She's really sensitive to loud sounds and light. He went, well, that's autism, not ADHD. So mm. I ended up going into this huge spill with him about they're all so intrinsically linked. You can't turn around and say that it's not a sign that she may be neurodiverse. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it's not, it is a spectrum. It is a spectrum. You know, it's not these little boxes like oh yeah you're dyspraxic you're ADHD you're autistic quite a few people will actually find that they have got um yeah using the term again comorbidities or dual diagnosis or even just being able to relate that yeah I'm ADHD but I can really relate to some of the things that come under the autism umbrella Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up uh, auditory and sensory uh, issues as well, because I never would have thought I had sensory, any sort of sensory issues or any sort of auditory processing Mm. issues until I really started looking over my life. And it was sort of like, oh, right. I can't brush my teeth with my eyes open. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, noticing these things that I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, I do have quite an interesting re you know reaction to certain sensory and auditory auditory issues yeah yeah I mean yeah. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of I'm sure there's a lot of neurotypical people who will say oh yeah yeah but everybody has that but it's how often you have it and how many examples you can come up with you know like I don't really suffer from sensory stuff but one thing I can't stand I cannot stand anybody putting anything in front of my face yeah I feel claustrophobic if, you know, I can do that. But if somebody else does that to me, I just freak, you know, and it's, um, 
yeah horrible but that's not that's not just the only thing it's the same I'm beginning to realize now that there's quite a few things that mean maybe I have got sensory stuff going on you know yeah right <laughs> it's fascinating yeah <laughs> uh, well I'm I'm so enjoying talking to you I was really looking forward to this conversation and you did not disappoint so <laughs> oh thank you thank you I feel like I could talk all day and I was I worried how I was going to fill the hour actually <laughs> so how can people find you online and how can people more importantly support you online and in your journey ah okay so um I've got a blog which I um is unloved occasionally but I do put quite a lot of my writing up on there and that is called it's on wordpress and that is called all life less ordinary so you can find it at all life less ordinary.wordpress.com come and have a look and have a follow still haven't got a medium page that's on my um my huge long list of things to do <laughs> that I look at and and feel sick Oh, I know. <laughs> every time I look at it um now I'm on Twitter um my uh, handle is kerry underscore 689 it's not very snappy but um I wasn't feeling very snappy when I uh decided that I was gonna have a quick look on Twitter you know about a decade ago and then didn't use it for three or four years so you can follow me on there one of the things I am doing at the moment, and um, if you follow me on Twitter or um, follow me on WordPress, um, is I am planning on writing a book, actually telling the stories in more of a kind of um, in-depth or sort of creative way of women who are neurodiverse and how their lives have been affected by that especially if they didn't find out until later or especially if they were told that they had mental health disorders instead. So um, that's something I'm really excited about. And um, yeah, basically watch your space. I find it really interesting how some of the most interesting and elevated voices within the ADHD community are coming from people who often are not elevated voices in, in a lot no, of other I subjects. agree I agree I mean I'm I'm white um I'm privileged mm-hmm. you know although um you know obviously I've had my struggles like a lot of people but that's one of the things I want to do really with writing my book I'm privileged that I can write as well and I can express myself in that way mm, um, I want to be able to tell people's stories and tell people's stories um that have had a very different experience to me but there are those common threads as well so yeah I'm um I'm just casting around doing my research and uh finding women at the moment who's um who want their, want their stories told so awesome well I'll make sure to include mm. that yeah I mean this is really this entire podcast is an excuse for me to reach out to women who I think are cool and and have an intentional <laughs> conversation with them. Oh, great idea. <laughs> uh, so thank you again for your time. It's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. It has you. Oh, it's been lovely. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I got a chance to check in with Carrie recently to get an update from her. So without further ado, here is my reunion with Carrie Mead. So can you believe it's been two and a half years since we spoke? That boggles my mind. No, no. And in fact, um, I had a listen back to the podcast 
this morning for the first time in probably about two years, three or four months. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't believe how much has changed. I couldn't believe how much time has gone by. Well, that's kind of what I, I wanted to do this. So really, I, I mean, I, I after 150 episodes, I thought I'd really like to revisit some of the episodes that have stuck with me over the over since this beginning, right? And I, I was like, I can't call them my favorites because literally every episode is my favorite. But I do feel like there were some episodes that have stayed with me in a way that I think about a lot or reference a lot. And yours was definitely one of those episodes that I feel like really was pivotal for me. Just, you know, I was, we, I was still very newly diagnosed that episode, you know, it was only, I don't remember what number the episode was, but it was fairly new. You know, I, I had not been diagnosed that long. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of come and, and get a little catch up and, and see how you're doing and, and what has changed over, over the last two years and change. Now, when we talked, you had mentioned that your daughter was about to get assessed. Did that happen? It did. And she was refused a diagnosis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because they um, they said they didn't have enough proof in school because um, she hadn't been in school because of lockdowns. Right. So she went back to the start of the queue, um, which she's still on. Wow. So, and uh, yeah, she's unlikely to get assess now the key I mean the key's shut it's shut now they can't actually add any more children to it so we're looking at probably another three or four years uh-huh. unless I can get the money together to get her a private diagnosis so mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty depressing well <laughs> but I also feel like I, I don't know about you but I feel like my understanding of ADHD and how we operate has so radically transformed how I parent diagnosis or not right official diagnosis or not it's just the conversation at home has changed so much about what motivates us and how we approach things and I do feel like self-diagnosis is so much more important <laughs> than official yeah that that's completely true you know we are a neurodivergent household and I parent like that and I run the household like that um and luckily like my daughter's now 12 and our school system is slightly different she's now gone up to what we call secondary school well she'll be until she's 16 and um you know they have implemented and everything in place as if she had a diagnosis you know she's still getting support as if she had a diagnosis so you know it's all there but I've been writing a lot about diagnosis and the pros and cons of how important it is but I feel like for my daughter at least it would be really beneficial to her for herself you know to know I think it's like this limbo for her and for me as well as a parent you know Right. Yeah. And I know we originally did talk a lot about the NHS. And and do you feel like much has changed in the last two years or has it gotten worse? Because I, I know there's been quite a few articles that have gotten a lot of attention about this kind of eye rolly. Everybody's getting diagnosed nowadays. Um, <laughs> uh, dismissal of, of neurodivergent awareness. I'm curious what your thoughts are. If you can sum them up, I'm sure. Can you sum them up in five minutes or less? Uh. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel it quite strongly. By the way, I got my diagnosis shortly after we um, had 
our, com- our original conversation. So I was diagnosed in March 2021. I uh, started medication in September. Um, and then it, it all just blew up in the UK around then. So many people deciding that as adults that they wanted to be assessed. I mean, the NHS in my local area can't speak for anywhere else. But now um, I know that my friend is trying to get a diagnosis for her adult son at the moment. He's a young adult. They've closed the books. You can't even go on a waiting list now for adult diagnosis. Even for private diagnosis, the keys are huge. And yeah, there is a lot of mistrust, I think, in the private diagnosis in the UK at the moment because of the bad press it's been getting, because of the amount of people who have all of a sudden, through what I think is more to do with increased understanding of neurodivergency and it being brought out into the light, rather than it being everybody is just decided en masse it's a really, really good way to get some really nice medication, <laughs> you know, and to get support and have an excuse for what could be considered divergent and problematic behaviour. There does seem to be this kind of like, and I don't see it in one to one. I don't think many people think this that I come in contact with, but this does seem to be this kind of mistrust of the process of people self-diagnosing, the amount of people who are now saying they've got it, you know, especially the media, I think, are feeding that, which, um, you know, I think I was lucky in a way. I got in there in time, but I feel, even I feel sometimes like, am I really, am I really do I really have ADHD? Do I have a right to this medication? Do I have a right to the support that I'm getting, especially at university? It's changed a lot, but not much, both at the same time here in the UK, you know. Right. I feel like given the amount of people who have been diagnosed in adulthood uh, recently and this explosion in awareness, there is a part of me that often wonders, are we talking about something else? Do we all share in these qualities that aren't necessarily under the ADHD umbrella, but are just part of the anxiety of life, right? And and I think that's a question I explore a lot in the podcast too, which is like, what are we talking about? And then I often co- then come back down to like, well, this whole conversation is very neurodivergent, <laughs> just having that constant questioning. It does feel like in the UK, the way that they've dealt with it has just been to shut everything down, right? It's like, we don't know how to deal with this number of people who are seeking assessments, so we're just going to turn everybody away. And I'm like, is there anything in legislation that is giving hope to providing more resources for diagnosis? Do you know what? I think it goes beyond neurodivergent people. It goes into the whole of psychiatry, adult psychiatry, I think, in the UK. Um, and again, I, I'd probably sound like a broken record, especially if somebody's listening to this now is just listening to my original podcast. But it's underfunding. It's having funding cut. You know, it's on the NHS. There's very There are very little resources. And sadly, there isn't the legislation to say that 
I mean, I don't know a lot about the law of this, but we don't really have any way of demanding resources that aren't there anymore unless you can pay for them. It's just the way it is. You know, like, for example, just trying to get CBT now through your GP, you'd be facing maybe a year or an 18-month waiting list. So if you're not in a position where you can pay, then you have got a very long wait if you do get any help at all, if you have any kind of neurological condition or mental ill health. Yeah, it just seems like a catch-22 and also just massive gaslighting because it feels like not only uh, if you do have the resources to pay for it privately, then you're told, well, of course, they'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And so then you feel as though you've bought the diagnosis, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, so what are we meant to do? What are we meant to do? Are we meant to just... So are we meant to self-diagnose and not seek a diagnosis? And then we get told that self-diagnosis is, is not enough. Are we meant to pay for it and get told that um, it's not a true diagnosis because we paid for it? Are we meant to feel guilty about spending the money on getting the support? You know, well, what else are we meant to do if it's not available on the NHS? <laughs> Uh, when we had spoken, you had gone, you were, you were back in university getting your master's. Is that, what's the update on that? Did you complete it? Yeah. So I think, I think when we spoke, I was thinking about it and I started it in September, 20, no, October, 2021, uh, master's in creative and critical writing. And I am nearly at the finish line. So I did it part-time over two years. So my dissertation is due in in a few weeks. How's that going? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's tough, man. I knew it was going to be tough. I knew it was going to be a hard, hard summer. There's no fun this summer. No fun at all. It's <laughs> a lot of uh, graft. But doing my, doing my master's has just been amazing. It's one of the best decisions I made. I've absolutely loved it. And I'm really glad that I got my diagnosis before I did it because I've had a lot of support and I've done the best I can, I think. It's great. It's great. It's just, and it's been really interesting. And I feel like I've found something that I want to carry on doing. So for once, rather than being bored of it by the time I've even finished studying it. That's amazing. Which used to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was funny listening back to the uh, our original conversation. I think I was like, wow, that's so brave of you to go back to school. And now I'm going back to get my master's as well. And I really do credit. Yeah, I really do credit the diagnosis. Like I never in a million years would have had the faith in myself to go back to school um, if it wasn't for this diagnosis. And also, like you said, now I know how to advocate and ask for the right support. And I know how what kind of strategies to look for. And so, yay, yay for <laughs> for tackling those mountains. Yeah, it's the best thing I've done for myself. Um, it's been amazing. Um, I mean, it's been hard at times, don't get me wrong. It's been really tough. I had a really steep learning curve in my first assignment where I've literally passed out through stress. Wow. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, 
you know, I've, I've learned a lot about myself and I've learned a lot about writing and I've had a lot of success. I've been doing really well. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's a great feeling after years of thinking that I couldn't cut it and I wasn't really that intelligent. And I've discovered that I used to say to people, I don't have any ambition, but I've discovered now I do. Right. And it is, that was something we talked a lot about was just like that feeling of being, you know, when you tell gifted children that they have a lot of potential, what you're basically telling them is that they're squandering their gifts. Right. And that and and that feeling of just the depression that ends up defining who we are into adulthood and, and why I reached out to you was that wonderful piece that you had written for Everyday Magazine, which R.I.P. Right. Everyday yeah, RIP, sadly. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll I'll keep the link to that episode or to that article because I think it's still so relevant and speaks. You know, one of the one of the reasons why our conversation has stuck with me all of uh, over the years has been how vulnerable it was to talk about believing that we were faulty. You know, just believing that we were so not living up to our potential, right? Or, you know, what's just the, the depression that comes so deeply with being a, a, a gifted child or a gifted underachiever, as I <laughs> always called myself. Um, and really just like you articulated so well that feeling of of hopelessness that we end up having in ourselves. And so it's so wonderful to to see how this diagnosis has really just opened up so many opportunities. And like you said, like feeling like, oh, my potential is limitless at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I just wish it had happened earlier in life. But, you know, <laughs> still just got to make the most of the time you have left and get as much out of that as you can, haven't you? And but also just be a bit kinder on yourself if you do need a bit of downtime, because at the end of the day, we are neurodivergent people trying to negotiate a neurotypical world. It's still tougher, even even with the drugs, you know. <laughs> oh, even with all of it. Uh, absolutely. Right. And then, you know, and then back to this idea of like the gaslighting and the constant questioning. Uh, do I deserve this help or or am I just a lazy piece of shit? Right. <laughs> I think it's still there. It's I don't know if it's ever going to go away, but it's at least you can recognize where that voice is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. So I'll have, I noticed that you have a, a new uh, website, carrymead.uk. So I'll, I'll love that it's got links to all of your writing. And um, yeah, what else are you up to? Are you? Well, um, the dissertation is the thing at the moment. Try not to do much else. The dissertation, the dissertation I'm writing, do you remember I was mentioning a book? Yeah. Um, I shelved, yeah, I shelved the book idea when I started the masters the idea of the masters was I in my head before I started it it was going to be a way of writing the book in a structured way with deadlines but as soon as I started my masters I realized I didn't want to use it for that I wanted to use it to learn I wanted to le use it to learn how to write more how to get new ideas how to write well how to write better and I've loved doing that just experimenting and you know I've been writing fiction and doing really well with that so the dissertation is the start of the book. The book has changed a lot, but it is about neurodivergence and it's mainly about ADHD experience of the world. Uh, well, keep me posted. I'll definitely um, love to follow you. I feel like we need more literary characters with ADHD, proper neurodivergent experience uh, as, as I experience it, because I feel like I've 
I'm always so let down by the neurodivergent characters in in literature most of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not fiction, but neither is it self help. I want to move away from that placing the blame on the individual. Yeah, it's you know like a lot of the books that we read are self help books at the end of the day, saying that you need to change in order to fit in, and isn't life going to be great once you have and I don't want it to be like that. So I'm going to carry on writing this book as long as I do other writing, which has nothing to do with ADHD, which I've really been enjoying doing as well. Oh, yeah, and get a job because <laughs> I'm not a student anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just grateful for the chance that I have to do. thank you for being so vulnerable in our conversation and just let you know what a um, influence you had on me and my own journey and uh, how much I appreciated your your wisdom and look forward to more amazing things in the world from you Carrie oh thank you so much Katie and thank you as well similar you know I remember our conversations well and it's just a really great reminder that people can have very different lives on different continents but we we basically share the same stuff let's <laughs> ADHD women running like a thread through our lives you know and it it, yeah it's the community and it's it's a good feeling and you know you were one of the first people that made me realize that so oh wonderful (laughs) yeah there you have it thank you for listening and i really hope you enjoyed this episode of the women and adhd podcast if you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.